This is Unmasked, the real face of the heroes. A six-part podcast with dramatised interviews of frontline workers in one of the UK's largest NHS hospitals, St George's, in London. This is a unique insider's view of the human beings at the heart of the COVID-19 crisis. Episode 5. Shabnam is one of those utterly astounding people. She is my colleague, a paediatric surgeon who works collaboratively with women surgeons around the world and is also a gifted writer and performance poet. We'd worked together on a project, Operation Theatre, bringing together NHS staff who write and Neil, Unmasked's director, staged our plays. Her interview was after a long day in clinic on the 28th of May and was astoundingly honest. Her story of loss in the very hospital she works is one of the most profoundly moving in this series. Thank you, Shabna. I then wanted to hear from a patient and their nurse. Mark was still lying in his hospital bed on a bustling medical ward when I went in to see him. Me squeezed in on his shiny white clean sitting out chair. We were past the peak now, but meanwhile Mark had been in and out of consciousness for three months. Later that day he was going to see his wife for the first time since she drove him gasping to ED. Tammy, the matron who introduced me to Mark and his nurse, senior sister Berlin, said it was good to see him and read out all the messages from all his ITU nurses wishing him luck and love. He beat the odds, and like Berlin, now just wanted to see his family again. The cruelty of the virus has been that we have all been kept apart from loved ones, some like Shabnam by only a few tantalizing corridors. The restraint and sacrifices have been breathtaking. COVID-19 took our collective breath away. 30th of May. When we got news of the coronavirus hitting the UK, I didn't realise how soon it would have such a devastating effect. We knew that it was kind of creeping up. We were talking about how we were going to prepare for this in the near future. So we were still going on with our day-to-day stuff, but we knew that we would have to increase capacity of ITU and to help with the influx of patients. And as paediatric surgeons, we thought we're not going to be hit by it with our patients because it was primarily an adult disease that we knew. So we were talking about reducing our elective work, getting ourselves prepared, volunteering to be redeployed to ITU and remembering all the medical physiology, all the stuff I used to know back when I was training as a junior. You lie down. You close your eyes, you lie down, you, you close your eyes, you have a little snooze and it feels nice. Then you wake up and they hit you with this, oh yeah, you're definitely going to go home. I'm, I'm going to discharge myself. I don't want to be here another day. I, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I'm stressed, man. It's, it's too long. Hello, I'm Berlin. Uh, basically, I work in the cardiothoracic intensive care unit as a sister. I've been there for 18 years now, and I have seen and experienced all sorts of different patients, but, well, this is the first time I've seen how sick patients were. Those first two weeks we found difficult. I'm used to working with anesthetists and consultants within my team, cardiologists, cardiac surgery, and then this comes. Initially, we thought just a little bit of ARDS type of patient, Then they went into multi-organ failure. Seeing people dying who were normally fit and well at a very young age, it's heartbreaking. Well, it's kind of vague. 
I'll give you what I remember. It's, it's like once on the Saturday, I can't remember where we were coming back from. And I felt, I just, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I was with my missus and I said to Sylv, I can't breathe. And then when we got indoors, I just collapsed on my bed and I said, Sylv, I, I can't. And she said, you got to go to St George's. So we got a cab down there and they, and they don't let her in. They didn't let her in. They let me in. Anyway, she went home and the next thing, the next thing, I'm in a ward anyway. Not, not in a ward, but I see you. It's been since from January, February, March the 20th. So you're coming up for like three months. So that's a very long time. I haven't seen my wife. I don't think I'd recognise her. So that was all happening. But you know, it was all kind of in the future. In the future. So my parents are up north in Lancashire. My in-laws are in Surrey. And we knew that this virus would impact people over the age of 60 or 70, worse than younger people. So, you know, you want to look out for your family. We actually got my parents and my in-laws to shield. That was a week before the lockdown came into effect, thinking we were doing the right thing. And because everyone was well, we didn't see it anywhere. But let's shield everyone. In hindsight, you know, I wish we did it even a week or two earlier. So we were the first intensive care unit to look after the COVID patients. So I think that, unless I'm mistaken, we first started taking patients on the first week of March. At that point in time, we were all ready. We had done our PPE training with all the donning and doffing. We had practiced, so we were confident about looking after this kind of patient. But I was shocked and surprised how sick they are and how fast they were knocking at our door. One shift, I had probably six or seven patients at a time. But the staff at the time, oh, were amazing. So the first three weeks was a challenge. And then it basically got more difficult. Because of the stress and then getting sick as well, the number of staffing was really, really difficult. At times, because I was the nurse in charge, you have to manage everything, not not only the patients, but the staff well-being as well. And even myself, I didn't quite know how to kind of, like, comfort them. But at the end of the day, I think the teamwork and the camaraderie came out just like, you know, just like that. Even those people who you think they're going to, you know, there's some stuff, you know. There's always somebody, you know, who, who might be a bit difficult. But at times like this, everyone came up together, you know, just like that as a team. They didn't care about their breaks anymore. They just wanted to make sure that the work is done. So my father-in-law contracted coronavirus. Maybe two weeks into them shielding, he developed the symptoms very quickly. And I found myself in the space of a couple of weeks being the medic looking after, by phone, four of my relatives who were all quite sick with coronavirus. Within the space of 24 hours of my father-in-law calling, he became breathless. We were living an hour away from them, so they called 111, who decided to call the paramedics. However, my husband and I managed to get to the house after he was taken by the paramedics, so we didn't really get to say goodbye. 
and we were worried about my mother-in-law because she was becoming unwell with similar symptoms, coronavirus. She's got risk factors too. So we conquered and divided with the siblings and got my mum-in-law taken care of. I decided to take a bag of things for my father-in-law to the local hospital and I was the last person to see him alive. All I can remember, to be quite honest with you, is what they tell me. So basically they told me that they wanted to put me to sleep so they can put that, what's, what's that thing, the breathing tube, yeah. But they said they tried eight, nine times each time I pulled it out myself. So I don't know, I said I cannot even remember that. They said, you won't, because you were heavily sedated, so I'm not going to remember that. And after that, I was in a room with all those bloody machines. And they all just go, beep, 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 all night, all day long. You don't get rest from them. They're horrible. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. There's stuff they said, which I did, which I just cannot remember. You know, they said that, obviously, I was nauseous. And they said that I tried to <laughs> I, I tried to fight with the nurses. I said, no, I'm kicking out again. But all it was, I used to tell them, I do remember this. I used to tell them, this has got to, I, I, I don't know why I thought that. But I did. In my mind, there was a conspiracy. Because, you know, the oxygen that they give you, right? You've got the oxygen and they used to shove those two bloody things up your nostrils. And when it ran out, it used to get really really hot so I would tell them they said you need to have it I said but it's burning me it's burning me I'm not going to put it on so I, I would rip it out myself I, I would I'll take it out myself and they would say put it back put it back and I told them there's a conspiracy you know if, if you're going to kill me kill me now at least let me know when you're going to do it but yeah I fought with them, not knowing that they were actually doing a bloody good job. Mark, actually, he was one of our difficult patients uh, in so many ways. We called him like uh, just a cat with multiple lives. He was very, very unwell for a while. And he was difficult because every time we took him off sedation, he would always fight. I can't count the number of stuff that he accidentally punched or kicked. Now, people who are sedated can have this confusion, delirium, and sometimes we find it difficult to find the right combinations of medication that made and helped the patient calm, but also pain-free. He decannulated himself once. <laughs> he pulled out his trach once. We were very cautious every time we did the sedation hold because it might happen again. And the more that it happens, the more likely it is to cause stenosis or trauma to his trachea, which is something we wanted to avoid. During the day, he was normal and well-behaved most of the time, but at night, he gets sometimes confused and delirious, which was pretty much the case for most of our patients in intensive care. What most patients will say when they give feedback after their discharge to the unit is that they had a, a bad dream or people are trying to hurt or kill them. And to be honest, I can still hear the alarms ringing all the time in my ears, even at home after work. So you can imagine them or for him. I think at the time he, he probably thinks we were after him. 
It was a challenge for us to give him less sedation so he could be more lucid, but make sure that he's still safe. Until, finally, one day, during our morning handover, he was pointing at his trach, and I said to Matron, who was the incoming in charge at the time, Look, he wants his trach out, I think. He's ready, I think he wants it out. Once we took the trachea out, he was finally able to speak to us, and all he kept telling us was that he wanted to go home. He was admitted to ITU, and then he was transferred to George's, where I work, and I breathed a sigh of relief, thinking, right, you know, it's a great place, the team are excellent, and I work here, so I should be able to get some input, but I was isolating because I'd been exposed to the virus. I was doing the right thing to protect my team and everyone at work by isolating. And so, for the space of just under two weeks, I was trying to manage everything by phone call. Getting my mum-in-law better at home because she was on the borderline of coming into hospital, looking after other relatives and trying to find out what was happening to my father-in-law. And it's a very strange circumstance because you think when you work in a place, we're all treated the same. There shouldn't be any preferential treatment. You think... Well, as a medic, you, by default, you want to save the day. (laughs) You want to do everything, and you want to save your relatives. And we were at the beginning of the peak, the chaos. So I know that at that time, people, uh, the situation, it was like fighting a large fire with minimal equipment. Their priority was to keep patients alive, and then afterwards, it's discussed with an update for the family. So as much as I tried to call, it was, if you don't hear from us, things are stable. We will speak to you if things are critical. I completely understood that, but when you're trying to explain that to a distressed family, it's not easy. And it's hard because you're waiting hour by hour, day by day. But yeah, it used to keep me up all night, those machines. And also, you're breathing, your, your heart rate... Heart rate has to be less than 90-something or whatever, between 60 and 100 or something like that. So all the time, I'm breathing in, out, in, out, just so that I'm taking enough air to keep that thing. So you're trying to do that. And in the back of your mind, you're conscious that you have to stick with that thing before you fall asleep. Not that I would ever fall asleep anyway, but... Yeah, that's, 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 that's most of all that I can remember, to be quite honest with you. We are used to providing a high standard of care. You know, outstanding care is what the trust tells us. To provide outstanding care to all the patients at all times. But uh, at this time, our priority was, we just want to keep the patient safe and do the best we can. But sometimes the staff don't have that strength anymore. But everyone came in and helped, helped us out from all sorts of, like, you know, background, working from different specialities. They came. Initially, it was difficult to know where you're going to put them to work, but every little helps. And basically, you appreciate it. Because at one time, you've probably got maybe... One intensive care nurse looking after four ventilated patients on hemofiltration at the same time. But it's it's nice, at least, to have somebody doing your OBS and, you know, giving at least simple medications. 
They appreciated all the experiences that they've learned from coming into intensive care. There are some situations towards the end of the shift when some of them are crying because they think they didn't give their best after their 12-hour shift. But, you know, what I normally say to them, as long as you know that you've done and given your best, you kept your patients safe, and you need to appreciate and acknowledge that. The help and support from registered nurses from different units, wards, and specialties oh, made a lot of difference. They were really honest as well in saying that initially they were scared and they came to intensive care unit not by choice by most of them. They were afraid and frightened for themselves, for their families, because obviously they were exposed. But to be honest, what I normally told them was, Honestly, in my opinion, we are more protected than anywhere in the hospital and to other people in the community because in the unit you have to protect yourselves and you've got the proper protection. And as long as you use the proper equipment and do it properly, you'll be fine. And then things were okay. All the words we were hearing from the nurses who called daily to my family stable, things are stable. And we got my mum-in-law better at home and I'm giving instructions to my husband and sister, you know, we were doing all the observations and I was getting everything. This was my virtual clinic ward 24-7. I've had stressful situations at work. That's fine. Life and death scenarios, but when it comes to making decisions for your loved ones and you're responsible, it's a really, really, really difficult thing to do. Because you have to be objective, but well, by the grace of God, we got her better. On the day she was more herself, however, was the day my father-in-law deteriorated. Oh, yeah. They tried to put me in some mask. Do you remember that film, The Man in the Iron Mask? They put me in one of those, you know. I woke up and I told them, get this thing off my face, because I felt trapped. This, this is why I thought there's something, there's something going on. Why do you want to put this mask on my face? Take it off. But it's there for your own good. I said, take it off because it just felt like I was being trapped. The gap was that big and it's just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I just thought, this really isn't very good. Anyway, they took it off in the end and said, well, you're just going to have to make sure that your breathing is standard. Yeah. We were told he had hours to live. I'd actually ended my isolation period at that time, so I went to the family home. And, you know, it was two days of waiting because he was fighting. We... Well, he didn't survive the fight. We got this phone call, the phone call we dreaded. The team worked incredibly hard, though, they were doing everything they could to get him better. You could hear it in their voices. However, it was all too much. They said, there's nothing else we can do. We're going to have to switch the machines off. Because essentially the machines were keeping him alive. And I stopped for a moment and I just said, can you please just say a few words from us? Everything in me was, let's just break all the rules and you know, just run in there with my PPE. I just wanted to see him. I knew that would not be the right thing to do at that time, so I just said, look, can you say some words to him for us? And one of the doctors said, actually, we've got a speakerphone here, why don't you say something? And honestly, I was so glad I asked that question. 
So we told them to call us back after a short time because we had to break the news to the family and we had to get everyone on the phone. And everyone managed to say goodbye. Sometimes I would wake up and I'd be in a good place. And there's other times I'd wake up, I'd be so scared. I was so scared. And I just said to myself, nah, this isn't scary, you know. And sometimes, sometimes you'd ask the nurses for their help. And they would just, you know, little knowing they were doing their job. They would just walk past you and not do anything. What are you doing? You know, do something. I don't know. Yeah, those nurses. Yeah, man. They used to tell me I couldn't do it. I said, ah. Well, watch this then. <laughs> Them nurses, they all told me stories. I don't believe half of what they say, to be quite honest. They told me, I did this. You were like this, Mark. You were like this. I said, no, I wasn't. Because I, I can't remember what it was. When you're underneath all those drugs, you don't remember. I told them, I don't know. You're all winding me up. I didn't. That's not me, mate. I know I had about a 50-50 chance when I was on ITU. They told me I'm a warrior. God must have wanted me to live or something because bloody hell, they said I'm one of the few. And this makes me really... Sorry. Emotional in that... We had one 26-year-old... 26-year-old who died and... We had this young family that can't come and we could hear on the phone the baby crying and, and the mother screaming. The wife just wanted to see her husband. And that's when the reality hits you. It could happen to anyone. It could happen to anyone young or old. It's, it's difficult because what if that's my husband? Hmm? Or if that's me? But to be honest, it's part of the job. So like when we're having this sort of conversation with my colleagues, until now, we still find it difficult to comprehend and to try to come to terms with the experience. And reflecting on that, you know, we have plenty of deaths. That's real. That's, that's true. But we've got plenty of survivors as well. And just having that balance is quite good, because, as you can imagine... When I see the news, obviously, before this happened, I had compassion for those suffering, but you see it from the other side. And when you're not able to see at all your loved one, and the last time you see them, they're well, okay, they've gone somewhere, (laughs) in the ether somewhere, because you haven't been able to see them. You haven't been able to see them unwell. (laughs) Everything's on the phone, and then, all of a sudden, you're burying them. You know when you hear about numbers on the news, about the number of patients affected, the number of deaths? It's not a number for me, that's a family. Every one of them, 40,000 families who haven't been able to see their loved ones, who haven't been able to contact their loved ones. I've had no visitors. I haven't seen anybody, I haven't seen anybody. My missus, she cries every day on the phone. I haven't seen her at all. I haven't seen her. And, yes, yeah, crazy. I, I know you've got to observe that, wh- whatever, but just give them the mask. Just give them the mask. If that's what you have to give them, 
at least let me see something just to give you a sense of normality you know a sense of that 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 that, that, that there's something worth clinging on to in this world you know i don't know i just want to take stock of what's happened i just want to not work so hard you know just sit down watch a bit of tv just try to just be normal again try to sit upright rather than lying down because that's all you can do in here you're just lying down there's a chair there the chair you're sitting on now you can sit up but then your bum starts getting hard we contact family on a regular basis and we also encourage mark as well to engage with the family as much as possible because that that really helps and then this monday i was on nights so i told him oh mark Hopefully you'll go to the ward today. And he was, well, I hope well, so. I hope I'm so. looking, forward, I'm looking to forward to that. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure you behave yourself. And he was just laughing. And I said, it will be nice to see you again, hopefully outside the hospital. But we don't want to see you again in here, back in intensive care. And make sure you do as you're told. I was laughing. <laughs> he said, of course I will. Of course I will. <sighs> He's independent, you know, doing things on his own. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're taking over his independence and his kind of life prior to this admission. So you do understand his frustration. But sometimes he didn't understand as well that we worked so hard to make him better as he was so poorly then. But, you know, he, he's one of the testament of our hard work and fruit of our labor. After all this craziness, you know, this disease, that there is a beautiful rainbow after the horrid rain. I've always counted my blessings for being a consultant in this hospital and the department I'm in. But it was the most painful thing to come back to work in the place where I just lost one of my most dearest relatives. And you're a kind of torn, divided person. You need to start carrying on, but there's always this pain. I haven't actually yet been to that part of the hospital. It's hard when people ask you, how are you? And they can tell something's up, but you're just kind of trying to talk about something else because you don't want to, I guess, sometimes. It's just so personal. And it's for you to keep in. The way I'm living has changed. The way I'm working has changed and, you know, you don't want to be bitter or resentful and you just try and see the bigger picture or you just try to find reason behind this. I'm Muslim. In Islam, they say, during things like this pandemic, you're a martyr. People who have been lost in this pandemic are martyrs because they've lost their life in order for people to study and learn and see how we can defeat this for the greater good. And I'm trying to see this for the greater good. And I believe that everyone has their time to go in their own way and you try to give yourself that solace that you've done everything you can. As medics, we always beat ourselves up for not being as good as we can. We always want to achieve the perfection. I've had those mental battles. My missus, uh, she's on her way here now. Uh, they may say, bloody hell, she's here, let's let him go. If we get out today, this will be the first time I've seen her. Oh my God. The first thing I'll do, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to sit in that bath. 
because I haven't had a bath. I had a shower in that, and they give you that. <laughs> My mate texted me. He said to me, "This is a this is a boy thing, basically." He said to me, "Mark, have you had your bed bath yet?" I said, "Yeah, yeah. I had a wicked one, and the best one was from Carlos." <laughs> so I said, "I'll send you a picture." So I said, "Carlos, stand over there." So he stood over there. So I sent him the picture. <laughs> Carlos with his big beard and his hairy arms. I was in isolation when the first clap for carers happened and I found it amazing at the beginning because I saw this camaraderie, this togetherness. When you're in London, and I'm not originally from London, you find that people just don't talk to each other. I was looking out at all these families who were outside and I thought, wow, do I have all these neighbours? And it was amazing. As a mother and a wife, I've had to keep a distance from my family. My kids, I've, I've got eight and ten-year-old boys, so they want to kiss and hug me when they see me. But obviously, since March, they can't. Because, you know, obviously, I'm exposed. But actually, now they're starting to hug mommy, so it's so difficult. But it's part of the job. It makes me really feel proud of myself as well, as I'm a healthcare provider. NHS frontliner, my children understand that and appreciate me more for what I do. On the Thursdays, they say, oh, this is mommy day. Every Thursday, they wait for eight o'clock and then they clap. But every Thursday, I work a long day, so I'm not really home until past eight o'clock, but they will tell me, mommy, don't worry, we clap for you today and everybody on the street clap for you. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. So what, they, they come out of their houses at 8 o'clock? What, they have to come to the hospital? Oh, they just stand outside their house. Well, I remember before I got in here, it was all kicking off then. But I didn't realise everything was... Uh, I knew they'd close the pubs and everything, but I didn't realise about the other stuff. Wow. I would never wish this on anyone, but I'm not walking out of this bitter. And yeah, I mean, I'm sad. I'm heartbroken. But you try and pick up the pieces because I know everyone out there is affected by this. There are people who are suffering with more atrocities than I've experienced. We've all just got to be there together. This pandemic, I'm seeing it as a way of the earth replenishing and healing. At the peak of this and everything happening, you just kind of stop and take time. It's the first time that we're all slowing down. People are actually asking how people are and actually meaning it. You go for a walk, I see people literally stopping to smell the flowers and, you know, I open the windows and the the birdsong is incredible. There's that poem, I think her name is Catherine O'Mara, and she wrote it around 1919 and it became popular during the Spanish flu pandemic and it's incredible. It's talking about people suffering, but actually it's like you've been in the storm, in this hurricane, and all of a sudden you've come out and everything's calm and you see this light. Maybe we need this to all heal and I think we're all going to be different after this. Yeah, it's sunny, isn't it? It's funny. I went out with one of my nurses. They just take you out just for a bit of fresh air, you know? And that day, it must have been about 26 degrees or something, and the sun, 
it affected my eyes so I had to come back inside because I couldn't see it was so blinding it was just so bright you know yeah it was really really bright so there's always been good and bad experience because of this COVID but most importantly we cherish the lesson that we have learned from this experience but I think looking forward if we're going to have a further search you know hopefully not I think we've probably got more knowledge and skills to manage them right this time regardless how sick and challenging they are for the doctors, it was clearly a challenge for them initially, but the good thing about it is they take everything on board to improve practice and patient outcome. And I think probably we will be more mentally and physically prepared on, on what to expect this time compared to what it was the first time, as we don't know how sick the patient was before. Another good thing that came out of this experience is we have become stronger and solid as a team the teamwork is amazing and everyone stepped up for the challenge we have gained friends and colleagues outside the unit I've had these small urges to write, to paint but I think I've just been emotionally exhausted I've learned to just try and do some self care which is something that none of us medics do very easily but I know there will be something coming out of this. There are words, there are visuals, there are paintings that I think will help me heal and maybe explain the things that have happened. Back at the beginning of the year, it felt like this disease that was far, far away and I had no idea the impact it would have on my life. But I'll never forget the junior doctor that was there in the last moments with my father-in-law. He was the most compassionate person him and the nurse looking after my father-in-law. That compassion I will never forget. Unmasked is a Serena Hayward production. Shelley Conn was Miss Chatham Picard. Lords Faberes was Belian Santos. David Monteith was Mark Alassani with Tracy Ann Oberman as Dr. Serena Hayward. It was written by Serena Hayward and Joseph Lidster. It was directed by Neil J. Biden. Production assisted by Sarah Weatherall, Davy Biden Oaks, Helena Copsey, Glenn Webb, and Holly Conley. With original music by Franna Otter. In association with St. George's Charity and St. George's NHS Trust. Please support the NHS Charity and Actors Benevolent Fund on Just Giving. For more information, please visit unmasked.org.uk.